In the gracious hand of God, suffering is a path to indestructible joy. Church family, we are in a series on suffering. It's a series titled Hope in the Dark. And I wanted to tell you about two 15-year-olds this morning in our teaching time. The first 15-year-old is a young man by the name of Kyle who wrote this poem. Here it is. God doesn't love me. You can't force me to believe God is good. This is the one truth in life. This world is a product of chance. How can I believe that God will use my life? I know with certainty that God has left me. Never again will I say that Christ is risen from the dead. I know now more than ever in my life that man can save himself. We must realize that it is ignorant to think God answers prayers. Christians declare that without God, this world would fall into darkness. This world can and will meet my needs. It is a lie to say that God has always been there for me. I now realize that no matter what I do, the truth is he doesn't love me. How can I presume that God is good? That's pretty hopeless, isn't it? And yet, one's perspective makes all the difference. And a change of perspective can change the entire outlook Uh, Let's read that poem again, but this time, Kyle wants us to start with the last line and read it in reverse. Listen, God is good. How can I presume that he doesn't love me? The truth is, I now realize that no matter what I do, God has always been there for me. It is a lie to say this world can and will meet my needs. Without God, this world would fall into darkness. Christians declare God answers prayers. We must realize that it is ignorant to think man can save himself. I know now more than ever in my life that Christ is risen from the dead. Never again will I say that God has left me. I know with certainty that God will use my life. How can I believe that this world is a product of chance? This is the one truth in life. God is good. You can't force me to believe God doesn't love me. Isn't that amazing? What an amazing, insightful poem from a 15-year-old, wise beyond his years. And the lesson, of course, is that one's perspective makes all the difference. I mean, we live often looking one way, giving attention one way to one point of view. And reading a poem like this helps us uh, because we realize that, well, from one perspective, from a human perspective, uh, we we just don't know how God can allow so much pain and suffering. God, how can injustice continue? God, if you are mighty, are you good? And we feel hopeless, and yet we endure. We persevere. We say with the perspective of heaven, God, I'm going to trust you even if I don't understand you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to accept you as you are and not as I want you to be. And as we do, our perspective matures. We become a God-reliant person in the hands of God. 
our gracious God. In the hands of our gracious God, suffering becomes a path to indestructible joy. Thank you, Kyle. Well, isn't this what we've been learning as we've been journeying through the Old Testament book of Habakkuk? If you have your Bibles, I would like for you to turn to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a temple prophet who lived in Jerusalem approximately 600 years before the birth of Christ. And he lived during the last days of Judah. The Babylonian Empire is on the rise. And Habakkuk lived in a day where life would not get better for the nation in the next generation. And we don't know that really, do we? Because American optimism has always taught us to believe that things will be better for our children or our grandchildren. But Habakkuk could not enjoy that assumption. And he's frustrated. He's frustrated because he sees all of the evil in his world. He sees it in his nation and he wants to know, God, how long are you going to let this happen? And he's clergy. So here is a pastor struggling with God. How are you, how long are you going to let this iniquity go on? And then God answers Habakkuk. God says, I'm not going to let it go on for long. I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm going to take care of it. And here's how I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to send the Babylonian Empire to take Israel into exile. And Habakkuk is just aghast at this thought. Well, but wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, they're worse than Israel. How is it that you're going to use a nation that's more evil to purge the evil? I mean, that's not what I had in mind, God. I thought we could do a revival or, you know, a, a prayer night or I thought we could do a new sermon series or something like that. And God's going, the problem is, the problem's pretty deep, Habakkuk. My people after centuries have gone after pagan, godless people. They have willfully allied themselves with godless nations. And now, now they're going to see what it's like when that happens. And Babylon's going to take them away. But Habakkuk, God says, I'm going to give you a vision of, of what I'm going to do that will eradicate the Babylonian virus from the entire globe. You see, it's not just a problem with Judea or Babylon. It is an entire world problem. And Habakkuk receives this amazing, trembling vision of what God is going to do. And then Habakkuk writes about it. And that's Habakkuk 3, where we are today. So the book of Habakkuk is about two exchanges between Habakkuk and the Lord, and then this incredible prayer, this psalm of Habakkuk. Listen to Psalm, uh, Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. 
O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light and rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation... You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses and surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait. For the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice. In the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This is God's word. Now, as we consider this psalm of Habakkuk, uh, I just want to tell you what we're going to see. Here's the big idea. In this psalm, in this prayer, God is inviting us. He's inviting us to a perspective that trusts his promises when we cannot taste his provisions. Trust his promises when you cannot taste his provisions. You see, one of the things that suffering does is it just strips us of just all of the, the, the outer things that we tend to want to depend upon. And so, you know, if my body fails me and 
I lose my faith, then maybe I had my faith in my body and not God. If the economy fails me and I lose my faith, maybe I've put my faith in the economy ahead of God. You see what Habakkuk is teaching us? Do, do you love God for God? Or do you love God for his gifts? In these verses, we're being invited to change our perspective, to trust the promises of God, even when we cannot taste the provisions of God. Now, how does that happen? Well, that's what the psalm teaches us. It happens by looking up and looking back and looking ahead. Look up to God, look back at his great deeds, and look ahead in joy. First, look up to God. That's what's going on here in verses 1 and 2. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigionoth. Now, what is that? Well, that's a musical term. It's a tune. So this psalm is intended to be sung with the congregation in the temple in Jerusalem. This psalm is intended to teach the people musically to stir the soul, to speak to our spirits with song and tune and to the choir master with stringed instruments. How God is the only person that we can totally depend upon in our lives. And so we need to look up to him. And so Habakkuk is teaching God's people to trust in him, especially when the day comes that a foreign power will invade Jerusalem and level the very facility in which they sing this song. So it's serious. Habakkuk is preparing God's people for the day when they will be taken away from Judea and sent into exile for Babylon. And they may not even believe it's going to happen, but Habakkuk knows because God has told him. And, and what Habakkuk wants God's people to focus upon is God. And, and his report, look, verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. What's the report? This is the report, the very word of God. Listen, this verse asks us to consider what we turn to first in our day of trouble. Every morning you wake up and there is a line waiting to occupy your mind, grab your attention. What do you focus on first? You get to choose what goes into your mind first. And what is that? Is it, is it a blog? Is it social media? Is it the news? What is it that gets first place in your line? Oh, the report. Habakkuk says, I have heard your report. I'm going to turn to your report first. 
because that's what I can depend upon most. And your report, your word, serves as a lens through which I'm able to interpret everything else that comes at me in life, you see. No doubt by now, you've had conversations that sound something like this. You know, what is God up to with COVID-19? What's he up to? And, well, some conversations don't entirely go well because, well, well, we kind of get on this, well, God's judging America through COVID-19. And I really don't think that's a very helpful conversation. And here's why. The minute we say that, and especially before uh, someone who's not a believer or someone who is young to Christianity, then, then see, the focus gets taken off of God and the gospel and the focus gets put on you because that person hears what you've just said and they're thinking, wow, what, why are you so judgmental? What's up with that? That's why I don't think that that's a very good conversation to have. But, but here's a better conversation. You know, what is God up to? What is God teaching us? Well, he's teaching us through COVID-19 what he teaches us uh, through, through, uh, through any disease, our mortality. The Apostle Paul says the outer person is wasting away. This body will not survive into the new heavens and the new earth. And so we're being called to think about the meaning of life. We're, we're called to think about, you know, not just our birth date, but what is the date of our death? And you say, well, that's just negative. That, listen, no, that's realistic. I've done over 130 funerals at Windsor Road Christian Church. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Our mortality, COVID-19, is a megaphone getting us to, to focus on what will last into eternity. And God, God is who we want to focus upon. God is who we want to look to. And our life in God, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I can't help but think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's last words before he was martyred as a pastor in Nazi Germany. Just before he took the steps to the hangman's noose, this is what he said. He said, this is the end, but for me, it is the beginning of life. Why could he say that? He could say that because he looked up to God. He saw God and his promises even when he couldn't taste the provisions. Look up to God. Look up to God. And then look back. Look back at his great deeds. Well, that's the main body of this magnificent psalm in verses 3 through 15. Remember, this is poetry, and Habakkuk uses imagery uh, that those who would have first sung this song would know exactly what he's talking about. Uh, this is Exodus 
imagery. This is imagery which reminds God's people of his great work in rescuing Israel from Egypt through the Red Sea, supplying Israel throughout the wilderness and bringing Israel into the land of promise. And that's why when you see words like God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, and then look at verse 7, I saw the tents of cushion in affliction and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. These are locational points on route from Egypt through Sinai, eventually in to the land of promise. In other words, these are geographic points describing the events that took place as God God shepherded his people into the land of promise. Habakkuk is saying, I want to look back to what God has done in the past. Oh Lord, I've heard the report of you. I've heard of your work, O oh Lord. And in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God, what you did in the past, do it again. You see what's going on here? Habakkuk is appealing to God's events, his active events in history. Church family, Christianity is not an idea-based faith. It's a fact-based faith. It is a faith based in history. God stepping into history and acting on behalf of his people. And my goodness, these images show how he acted. Verse 3, his splendor covered the heavens. Verse 4, brightness was like light. Rays flashed from his hands. Verse 5, before him went pestilence. That describes the plagues that he inflicted upon Egypt. Uh, uh, finally, when Pharaoh released God's people. And then was your anger against the rivers or your indication against the sea? Verse 8, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. God is described as this warrior king coming to the rescue of his people. And then it says that the mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The Red Sea parting, God acting on behalf of his people, doing for his people what they could not do on their own. Our faith is based on the events of the warrior king who did for us what we couldn't do ourselves. And oh, look at verse 12. Verse 12 could also be translated, you strided through the earth. You strided. You stride. Our God is the God who strides. God strides and Pharaoh falls. God strides and Egypt is decimated. God strides and Israel goes to the Red Sea. God strides and manna falls to feed his people. God strides and Israel strides into the land of promise. God strides and Babylon rises. God strides and Babylon falls. God strides, God strides. He, how effortless it is for God to be God. He is the God who strides. Can your God stride? 
If, you're, if your God could stride, would you have more worries or less worries? Would you have more fears or less fears? More sleepless nights or less sleepless nights if your God could stride? If your God could stride, would you bring more or less peace into whatever room you entered? If your God could stride, would you have the capacity to forgive or not? Church family, our God strides. He strides. And Habakkuk is just taking all of this in. And in verse 16, I mean, he physically begins to react to this, to this vision. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. <laughs> my legs tremble beneath me. Listen, be careful when you ask that you want to have uh, an appearance of God. <laughs> this is what it did to Habakkuk. And then Habakkuk says this, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. You see how Habakkuk's faith has just gone through seasons? Chapter 1, he's questioning God. How long shall I cry for help? How long will I cry to you violence and you will not save? But here in chapter 3, Habakkuk says, I've read the report. I believe the report. I've been in the presence of the God in his holy temple and all the earth keeps silence. I know what you can do, God that you are the warrior king who will come to crush the head of evil. It's an echo to Genesis 3, right? When God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And Habakkuk, Habakkuk is able to rest in the promises of God, even if it's apart from the provisions of God. And he doesn't, he may not even survive the invasion of the Babylonians. He does, we don't know. We don't know if he was taken to exile or not. But what we know is that he had committed to quietly wait for the day of trouble. It's because he looked at God's record, his God's own portfolio of faithfulness. This is why we saturate our lives with the word, church family. This is why we're unsh unshakably committed to Scripture. Because the Scripture grounds us even in the day of calamity. Look up, look back, and then look ahead in joy. Verse 17 Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Here it is. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy 
in the God of my salvation. Can you say that? Can you? I mean, Habakkuk is speaking of total economic failure. It's an economic apocalypse. And this is not just a, a random list. This is, this is a financial portfolio. What do you do when you're wiped out? Well, what if your investments disappear? What would you do if tomorrow the stock market imploded? What then? How do you face that? What if you lose your job? What if the safety net fails? What if you become disabled? What if you run out of food? What if you can't pay your bills? What if your children wind up in prison? What if your loved ones never come to Christ? What if the doctor says there's nothing more to do? What if your spouse has a heart attack and you're left alone? What if your spouse says, I want a divorce? What if America falls to a foreign power? What if you lose your job because you're a Christian? What if you end up in jail for your faith? Well, what if, what if we have to do what we're now doing for who knows how long? What then? What are these verses asking, no, not asking, challenging us about? Are we willing to trust the promise of God when we cannot taste his provision? Are we willing to say, no matter what happens, yet I will rejoice? Are we a yet I will rejoice congregation? Verse 19 means that when I'm on a slippery hillside, like a deer, I have traction and I will not fall. And why? Because God is my strength. One commentator says it, it can be translated this way. God is my army. God's my army. And so Habakkuk embraces this. He embraces his calling. His calling is now to return to the temple, to his vocation, to his ministry, and to teach God's people this psalm and to sing it with passion. It, this is not a funeral dirge. This is a song of praise and worship and trust in the God who keeps his word. And this is a psalm that is sung by a prophet who has resolved to display in his life the very report of God. He is returning to live the beginning of the rest of his life. He understands that because this is a sinful, broken, fallen world, some things just simply won't be fixed in this life. I will trust you anyway. I really don't think that we can understand Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faith. I don't think we can really understand that without Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, yet I will rejoice. Because it is when we are suffering and it is when heaven is silent, when we want God to answer us, it is only then that we understand what gritty, rugged faith looks like. Gritty faith, mountainous faith that requires the kind of footing that God has gifted the, the deer in the field as the deer climb that mountain and finding itself secure on the mountain of God. We're talking about reliance on the goodness of God when we can't taste it. God, I'm going to trust your promises because I've looked up to you and I've looked back in the report of your word 
And I'm going to look ahead with joy. I'm going to do that. Will you, will you join me in doing that, church family? Please. Well, let me tell you about another 15-year-old. Her name was Margaret. James Davidson Ross wrote about Margaret in, in a book by that name. Uh, Margaret was Ross's 15-year-old sister-in-law who had a rare form of cancer which killed her four months after it, it was discovered. Ross tells how the family first tried to protect Margaret from the news and finally they saw that she just had to be told but how she responded brought about profound transformation in the lives of Ross and all the family members. Within five minutes of learning that she was dying of cancer, Margaret was just overwhelmed with joy and peace. It was as if a, a, a supernatural hovering had just lighted upon her. Her, her calm faith was a catalyst to leading Ross and others in the family into a vibrant walk with Christ, 15 years old. And Margaret's pain was agonizing, but to the very end, she possessed tranquility, peace, and yes, even humor, because Jesus was her army. And one day, when she was with Ross there, they both just had this, uh, this epiphany, this thought. So this is what it's like to be crucified with Christ. And Margaret didn't begrudge that. Margaret was moved that Christ had counted her worthy to suffer. Who says that? Who says that? That young lady could taste God's promises when she couldn't taste earthly provisions. And this is what Ross says in the book that he wrote about her, last page of the book. She died in faith and left us her testimony to it. Out of her love, she pointed the way to all who opened their eyes. Will you please open your eyes to the love of God in Jesus Christ? Will you please open your eyes to his promises? So someone once said, you will never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And when Jesus is all you have, then and only then will you discover that Jesus is all you need. Trust his promises when you cannot taste his provision. That church family is the big idea of the little book of Habakkuk.